I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. Today's episode is part of our new series called But How Though, where I ask people that exact question, how? How do you get out of debt? How do you change careers? How do you stop comparing yourself to people on the internet? How do you have more fulfilling sex? build stronger friendships, decide whether or not to have kids. Each episode of this series explores a different question like that with a different featured guest, someone who is oh so bravely joining me to share the ups and downs of how they've managed to close the gap between what they say they want and what they actually do. Speaking of the how, let's talk for a second about how this show gets made, because behind the scenes, our podcast does things pretty differently in a few ways. First, We are 100% listener-funded with no ads or sponsors. And also, all of our guests get paid, and higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. The funding to create this show and pay all the guests comes entirely from our Patreon community, which operates on a shame-free sliding scale that allows each community member to support from within their own means. Tons of fun stuff happens over in that community. I host live workshops, share exclusive bonus episodes, and lots more. And no matter where on the sliding scale your monthly pledge falls, you still get access to all of the same events and bonuses. So if you love this show, and if you want to make a real-time vote with your dollars to help keep it going, all while meeting the wonderful, like-minded people who are already in our community, spoiler alert, they're the best, you can come and join us over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. We'd love to have you. And now, on to the show. All right, friends, let's do this. I'm joined today by Natalie Liu, who's here to talk about how she became less of a people pleaser, which is just such a juicy topic. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I'm so glad you're here, Natalie. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Nicole. I'm I'm really happy to be here, too. Oh, it's like the topic that I do and do not want to talk about, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of people feel that way because uh, I think there there is this sense around this topic, you know, all people pleasers, you know, benevolence, generous, giving, sweet, kind. And that is often true most of the time, but there's a, a whole other side to people pleasing that people aren't aware of, the, you know, the downside, the dark side, which is actually what the majority of people pleasing really is about. Mm, yes, we are going to get into all of that. To get us started, I would love for you to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, what you love. Basically, what are a few things that we should know about Natalie? <laughs> well, as you said, I'm Natalie Lou. I have been writing a well, we call it a self-esteem and relationship website called baggagereclaim.com for just over 15 years. And I've actually been blogging for almost 16 and a half years. And I really talk about everything to do with unpacking and decluttering and reclaiming ourselves then from our emotional baggage. And I do that because when I first started out writing, I was in a very, very different uh, space, really did not like myself very much, but didn't know it. And it was my life that was really telling me that. And it was through writing on my then personal blog and sharing experiences that I started to realize, ah, these things that I think make me weird or unlovable, turns out lots of other people feel exactly the same way and are going through exactly the same things. And the more that I talked about it, the more that I shared is the more that I realized that I really wanted to dive deep on this. And so for the last 15 years, it's really once I experienced my sort of epiphany about my uh, uh, what was going on in my life, why I was doing it, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that, um, I then made it my mission to help at least one person avoid what I had been through or to help at least one person get out of that. And I've done that obviously many times over in the 15 or so years. And so I've written several books and, um, I, you know, to teach, uh, e-courses, you know, because, well, who's doing an in-person thing these days, thanks to the pandemic. 
And yeah, I, I'm very focused on helping people pleasers, perfectionists, and overthinkers in particular to, um, you know, to address that emotional baggage so that they can be more them and also so that they can enjoy more fulfilling relationships. Overthinking and perfectionism. You are speaking my language. I'm in the right place, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, it, there's so many people identify actually with the overthinking and perfectionism, but they're variations actually of people pleasing. Mm-hmm. I, I said something um, uh, about a month ago about how I'm trying to not just live my entire life from the neck up, right? Like, oh, I have a body too. I can sink into it. It's not just about the like wow. doom scrolling thought spirals. And so the the overthinking feels very relevant and resonant to me. I love hearing how long you have been blogging and sharing these stories. I have been sharing personal stories either you know through writing or podcasting since 2007. So, you know, a a couple years shy of you. And I always feel like when I meet other people that have been doing something like this for that long, it feels like we're part of this like strange early internet club, like the early days of this. Yeah, Yeah. we are the OGs, you know, the veterans, you know, we're in Shady Pines territory now when it comes to, (laughs) you know, the blogging, you know, we are the, we are the early, as you say, the sort of pioneers and life was very different blogging wise internet wise back then a lot of the things that exist now twinkle in the eye back then when we both started out i know i just recently started a like blog newsletter thing i guess we'll call it on substack and one of the reasons that i started it is because i felt like i was really missing the like, 2008 to 2012 era of blogging it just felt like a totally different space and the comment sections were really lovely and people made friends in the comment section and sort of have this hypothesis of like, can we get back there? And maybe it's not possible, but I I have a little nostalgia for for those days. Do you know, I'm feeling very much the same way myself. It's something I've sort of gone back and forth about because, you know, I started a podcast, um, gosh, it's actually five years ago, but I took like a year's break in between. And I have noticed that gradually over time, that significantly impacted on how much I was writing. And at the same time, there's also been a real shift, as, you, as you've as you really alluded to there, about how before things took place in the comments, you could literally only interact through the comments or privately via email. And so you, there was a real, yeah, comments really kind of, the, the engagement around that really let you know where you were at in terms of conversations and your content. And then there's just been a dramatic shift. And now comments aren't really a thing per se, unless you're on like a news site, you know, or one of these very sort of intense fan type sites. It's it's not like that with blogging anymore. It's like people will read it, but then they'll go off to Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or something. Well, probably Instagram. Yeah. I, I feel like this is the conversation where our grandparents would be like, you know, back in my day, whatever, fill in the blank here. <laughs> Listen to us, like the comment section. Uh, so with people pleasing, this might be kind of an, an overly simple question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think it's important. The first thing I'd really love to ask is for you to describe what you think people pleasing actually is. I feel like it's one of those terms that everyone sort of understands, or I guess maybe I should speak for myself. I hear it and I think that I know what it means, but it's more on the surface. And I'm interested in perhaps like a a definition, what Mm -hmm. you think is at the core of it, kind of how it manifests, that sort of thing. Yeah. And actually, I would say that what you've described there is how the overwhelming majority of people actually feel or think about people pleasing, which isn't, as a lot of people tend to think, you know, the equivalent of being a doormat. I mean, yes, okay, in some instances it could go to that level, but actually people-pleasing is doing what can, for all intents and purposes, be good things, but for the wrong reasons. And those wrong reasons will always center around because you feel obliged, even if you're not technically obliged, you feel like you have to, because you feel guilty, because you're anxious, because you are afraid, because you're trying to control something. And so the other side of this, or really what kind of works in tandem of this, is that as a result of all that, people-pleasing then is about putting your needs, desires, expectations, feelings, and opinions 
on the back burner, suppressing and repressing them to put everybody else's ahead of your own so that you can gain attention, affection, approval, love, and validation, or so that you can avoid conflict, criticism, disappointment, rejection, loss, stress even, and actually what some people will refer to as the big A, abandonment. And the reason why I started out by saying it is about doing what can, for all intents and purposes, be good things, but for the wrong reasons, is because with people-pleasing, it's the why behind what we're doing that makes it people-pleasing. That's what keeps it so out of view for a lot of people because it's like, oh, well, I'm a hard worker or I'm just being helpful or I'm being generous or I'm being supportive. But when we are unaware of our intentions, our motivations, our why, and then we go and examine them and discover that a lot of the time we're doing stuff that we don't actually need or want to. We're often obliging ourselves into it. And the clue with people pleasers is that, and it's funny, every time I've ever given a talk on people pleasing, I say, do any of these sound familiar? Uh, feeling resentful, overwhelmed, burdened, overcommitted, guilty, anxious, powerless, helpless, victimized, low, depressed. And I, you know, I, I list off these types of things. There might be like sort of this recurring irritation, whatever it might be. When we are engaging in people pleasing, we will tend to feel quite drained and we don't, we're often not able to either take care of ourselves or articulate what it is that we need or want. And a lot of that is really coming from <laughs> expecting with people pleasing that we can do all of this stuff and that people will then do what we need and want. So it's like, we don't take care of our needs, desires, expectations, feelings, and opinions because we think, oh, I'll please everybody else. And then they will take care of all of that stuff for me as well. And our pleasing is a way of making us feel worthy or it's a way of making us feel needed. It can be a way of making us feel purposeful, but it's, a, it's like wearing a mask or a costume because we're doing it because we are afraid that if we don't do it, we're not going to get what we want or that we're going to be hurt or disappointed. And so we get into this vicious cycle and it ultimately comes from, it's, it's a learned habit. Um, we are socialized actually to be people pleasers. You know, the world says to us, particularly like for instance, girls, be meek, be mild, kind, sweet, you know, don't make waves, don't cause trouble. Parenting was about obedience and be seen and not heard, all of those types of things. It's work hard, you'll get the grades, get the grades, you'll get the job. So there's a lot of this tying our sense of worthiness and, and how well we're doing in life on being a good person and helping out and doing basically whatever people tell you to do. And of course, once you start to work out where you're going to get praise or where you're going to get attention, you can often end up repeating that and walk yourself into a whole world of pain over time. Oh, okay. Well, we both need to cancel the rest of our day because we're going to talk about this for the next 16 hours because <laughs> you just laid out some really good topics. <laughs> uh, I'm, pr I'm particularly interested in sort of this idea. I know the, this isn't the, the wording that you used, but, you know, when we, when we do these things, like you said, sort of expecting that then other people are going to take care of our needs or they're going to respond in a certain way, it's really interesting to me how all of that is happening below the surface because it's not like we had a conversation or a negotiation of I meet these needs, you meet these needs. It's almost like manipulative and secretly transactional. Yes. Yes. And yes, that's yes, yes, fascinating yes. to me because, you know, I, I, I feel like we all know that feeling of, you know, I did X, Y, or Z and either the person didn't appreciate it or they didn't notice or they didn't reciprocate when like you just assumed that they were going to reciprocate in a certain way. And like you said, that can lead to a lot of resentment. Amen to all of this, because I always say that if you routinely have this sense of feeling, um, underappreciated, marginalized, taken advantage of, or even abused, and you've had that thought or even said to somebody, after everything I've done for you, or where you're fuming to yourself, like, 
but I do this and I've done this. And this is the clue that it's not that we are bad people, far from it. If anything, actually, we misappropriate our good qualities. But we are so invested in this idea of being air quotes good that it actually hasn't occurred to us that the way in which we go about doing stuff and claiming, oh, well, I don't want to hurt feelings. You know, I don't want to cause confrontation. You know, I'm just being loving. But if you're doing stuff to generate a desired outcome, that's not authentic. It's these hidden contracts. And I say to people that people pleasing is like creating a debt and then expecting other people to pay it off. You go around doing all this stuff and somewhere on some level, there is this transactional element. I did this, I did this, I did this. Gradually the receipts build up. So for instance, we are in a romantic relationship. We accept less than what we need. We don't really have any strong conversation around that. We possibly even hide who we are because we're worried that if we were truthful about who we are, that maybe the person would be scared off. So we we play it small. And then when we feel like, okay, well, I've put up with an awful lot of stuff here. So surely they should feel bad enough, guilty enough that they would want to give us the relationship. And the person doesn't. We fume. We feel besieged like with resentment. Yeah. Can you share some of the things that you've done in your life in the name of being pleasing to others? I feel like it would be helpful. You know, maybe we can just talk about a couple. You can share some. I can share some. Like yeah. grounding it in specific examples, I feel might be useful. Well, like for me, I've always said that people pleasing is certainly was as natural to me as breathing. So I am over-responsible. I was an over-responsible child. So from early on in life, I took on responsibilities that were not mine. You know, like taking care of my siblings and beyond the whole looking out for your sibling, you know, like feeling responsible for their happiness and their success and having to protect them far beyond the bounds of being a kid. I would sometimes play, play armchair therapist or even substitute spouse to my mom and think that, okay, well, this is showing what a good daughter I am by letting her basically talk about all of her inappropriate stuff to me. Um, this people pleasing was a lifelong habit of mine. So I, a, a lot of my sort of doing things, being good, performing as such, we're about trying to control moods. Like, oh, if I'm a good girl, if I help out, then mommy will be happy and or, or there won't be fighting or this will happen. And it didn't. So gradually over time, of course, I started to feel quite resentful about all of that. Once I got into adulthood, in fact, even from my teens and I started, um, you know, going out with boys, um, oh, like I, the people pleasing, you know, kicked in then, you know, I was trying to be the good girl, nice girl. And so I would sometimes be in situations where boys were trying to pressure me to do stuff and it would, it would like take, it would be excruciating for me to actually speak up and say, oh, actually, no, I'm not comfortable with that. In work, it turned me, it made me burnt out because I saw it as my job to just go, go hard at work. So I, I very rarely missed any targets at work in the space of, I don't know, I think about four years or something like that, three, four years. And sometimes worked so hard. It was like I was doing the work of other people on the team as well. That's how much I overperformed. Um, I was in an affair with a coworker who had a girlfriend and that was really some of my worst people pleasing. But I also think that um, my people pleasing, funny enough, <laughs> has really revealed itself to me in the last several years during working for myself and through motherhood and, you know, being in a in a relationship. And it's the relationship, I think, in particular with my mother-in-law as well, and realizing that I was almost like a performing seal quietly, you know, with her trying to be like the perfect daughter-in-law, that that completely broke down my people-pleasing. Like the fallout from that really brought it all sort of face-to-face -face with me. And so mine has showed up, as, as you can hear there, in a variety of, of guises. And 
listen, uh, I'm a recovering people pleaser, so it can still pop up, but it is far less so than it ever was before. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing all of that. I can, <laughs> I was not, I mean, you can't see this, but I was nodding along to, to a lot of it. I feel like so much of this, like if I look at my own life, I've had to question the difference of like, do I want to be good or do I just want to be seen as good? Yeah. And I don't think those are necessarily the same, right? Like I look at periods of time where I did things that mm, I wasn't pr- I'm, like wasn't proud of or that were out of integrity for me or, you know, like things that I really didn't want to do or didn't want other people to find out about, right? We've all done stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was like, it was okay as long as I was still seen as being good, right? Yeah. Like there's something about the illusion of it that I think is interesting. And, and I also have been thinking as you were sharing about just the tendency to try to like micromanage other people's emotional landscape, particularly with people that I've lived with, whether it was roommates or partners that, you know, if I could do all of these things right, whether it was, you know, clean a certain way or, do you know, do a certain number of things or cook their favorite thing. And what you said at the beginning of it's not about the act itself. It's about the why, because I think cooking someone's favorite thing is a lovely thing to do if it's coming from a place that's like more joyful, right? As opposed to I'm going to do these things so that the peace is kept, so that, you know, no bad things come up. There's like really something interesting to me in that of like, essentially, like, what are the motivations that we have for, for acting this way? Yeah, absolutely. And it's this, this why thing is really at the heart of it, because as humans, uh, knowing why we do what we do, our intentions, um, helps us to make better choices. It helps us to be more self-aware. And when we're not aware of what we're doing and we're not paying attention to the outcomes of that, we find that we enter into things, like you say, you do that seemingly nice thing of cooking. And so it has that appearance of, yes, this is a lovely thing. And it is. But the why behind it, when we're not aware of our intentions, is there's this low level anxiety that if we don't, that this person might not think a particular thing uh, about us. And people pleasing is like a response to old hurt and loss. But it's also, I do think that, yes, as much as we have learned to people please, because we think as kids, oh, I didn't really like that thing that happened. Maybe if I was more pleasing in some way, maybe we don't necessarily phrase it in this way, but maybe if I do this, then this will create this. And maybe if I don't do that, then this will cause that. And a classic example of this is, let's say you grow up in a home with a sibling who like demands a lot of uh, of your parents' time because they are getting into trouble. And then we see that our parents are stressed, that maybe they punish them, you know, in quite harsh ways, you know, how this person is viewed. People-pleasing can start up as simply as observing that and saying to yourself, hmm, okay, so my job in the family is to make sure that I'm the good one, that I don't behave the way that they do. I've got to do better than they have, than they do. I've got to be the good one. I've got to be more responsible. And just like that, boom, we're people-pleasing. And this motivations thing, one of the things I say to people is, let's think about something that you're doing. And of course, the trouble with people pleasing is a lot of it happens automatically because we've we've used to just complying. Yes, 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 and afterwards going, oh shit! Like, what the hell have I just signed myself up for? Um, but if we actually say to ourselves, okay, if the person wasn't going to respond in the way that we anticipate, and we weren't going to get the reward that we think we're going to get, or you know, some desired outcome would we still go ahead and do this? And a lot of the time the answer is no. And then I say to people, okay, so if the answer is no, would you go and say to that person, I expect this if I do this? And they also (laughs) say no. So it's amazing how once we become aware of our intentions, we realize, oh, wow, I do this stuff because I don't want to have conversations. Hmm. Yeah. You mentioned you know, the sort of perceived rewards or the expected rewards that we're going to get. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is that, uh, like, of course, you're right that there are 
expected rewards and sometimes they don't happen and that can lead to the resentment that we talked about. But also sometimes they do happen, right? Like if, if yeah. people pleasing didn't work to some degree, we wouldn't do it. So I'm I'm interested in some of the examples that you shared, you know, fr- from your life, what do you feel like you were getting from acting that way? Like in which ways was it working? Because I, f- I feel like for me, so often I'm not willing to make a change until like the pain of not changing outweighs the fear of changing. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you mentioned before having sort of an epiphany around this. I'm sure there, there was that, you know, maybe breaking point or maybe it wasn't necessarily that extreme for you, but I, I, I'd love to hear about what you feel like you were getting from acting that way. Mm-hmm. And then maybe when that started to not be enough anymore. Well, uh, people pleasing is is like a coping mechanism, a survival mechanism. So our younger self has has been conditioned into these habits. They're things that we've taught ourselves. They're things that we've been taught by others that we've observed. You know, we've internalized, and of course, then it becomes maladaptive over time because people pleasing is like a mask. It's not actually who we are. So for me. What people pleasing did is it allowed me to wear this mask that stopped me from being too vulnerable. There was this underlying fear that I was going to be rejected or abandoned if I allowed people to get too close to me or if I didn't do what they wanted me to do. And so as a result, people pleasing allowed me to keep people at a distance while also having the veneer of, you know, seeming all sort of cool and chill and nice and all the rest. It also, uh, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to phrase it as I'm not proud to admit this, but a, a lot of my people pleasing masked passive aggression as well, having this sort of veneer of compliance on the outside, going along with what, for instance, relatives expected of me, and then quietly rebelling behind the scenes, but obviously as a result, not really having to deal with the potential conflict that would have, that I felt would have come about. Um, it allowed me to be seen in a particular way, like by friends or by coworkers or even by partners to a certain extent. What I ignored, of course, um, with these, with what I thought I was getting out of it, which fundamentally was always, I think, about avoiding conflict and criticism and rejection and abandonment, but also trying to get praise where I could. And I did get a lot of praise about a lot of things. I was always considered to be a hard worker, a great friend, always struggled on the great daughter front, no matter how much I tried to please. But I felt like I was, I felt for me, until I really examined it, I felt like what I was getting out of it, that uncomfortable comfort zone, was better than the unfamiliarity of being myself, of actually confronting why I was doing this stuff in the first place until it didn't work for me anymore. And I think what we often struggle with, with people pleasing is looking at, okay, so yeah, you are getting this stuff out of it, but what isn't working? And a lot of the time people are disassociated from what isn't working because they see it as a as a worth issue. Well, I'm not good enough. I didn't try hard enough. That person didn't do what I wanted them to do without really ever making a connection between people pleasing and how they're feeling or how that even impacted on the nature of the situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I feel like one of, you, you know, you mentioned it coming up particularly, you know, with family for you. I feel like for me, obviously I have engaged in and continue to engage in, right? You said recovering people pleasing in a lot of different areas. But, you know, if I look back, particularly in my 20s, it was predominantly in romantic and sexual relationships with men and with mm-hmm. wanting to be seen as the cool girl, yeah. right? There was like something oh, in that. Yes. And it, yeah, right? Like for me, my fear has always been around being too much for people, you know, yeah. too loud, too needy, right? All of these things. And uh, and part of that fear is just, you know, my fear and part of it has been reinforced that I have been told, you know, subtly and not subtly that I, you know, I'm a lot or I'm too much or, you know, all of these different things. And so it, it doesn't like our fears don't come from nowhere. And, no, they don't. Right? Like, and for me, it was 
okay, well, if I'm, like you said, really compliant or if I'm the cool girl, if I don't need too much, you know, then I'm going to be able to be picked. I'm going to be able to be chosen. And, you know, if the currency that I'm trading in is male approval, right, if I act in these certain ways, it makes me more likely to get picked, like to be that chosen one. But then I kept finding myself in relationships where because I had gotten into the relationship not acting as my most real too much self, then I'm in the relationship that, of course, isn't the right fit and makes me feel unhappy because I wasn't me to begin with. Right. And so then of course it, it, you know, it never really worked out. And there was like really a time where I had to decide I'm actually just not going to do this anymore. And having to be willing to be less likable, to be less frequently chosen. And that was so scary. Honestly, I feel like you are describing me in my twenties. I was always the kid that was too much of like a lot of things. And we have to keep in mind that the things that we are critical of us about and that we perceive as being too much or, or too little are what we've been conditioned, what we've been socialized to believe are wrong. And a lot of the things that we give ourselves a hard time about are outdated ideas about gender and sexuality and race and privilege and all sorts of things that we are still clearly grappling with as a society today. I loved when you said about the whole cool girl thing, because like you and I, we'd have partied on down together, like in our <laughs> respective twenties, but also because one of my favorite books of all time really highlights the dark side of people pleasing. Uh, have you read Gone Girl? I have not because I, <laughs> people who know me well will know this, anything that's like even remotely like psychological, thrillery, disturbing, anything in that genre is not Nicole approved. And so I have had friends who had said, this is great book and not for you. So, but yeah. I'm familiar with the premise. Well, uh, Amy, the, you know, the protagonist, well, protagonist slash antagonist, she is cool girl. It, it is actually a psychological thriller about people pleasing. And in this case, it's, it's and I'm not going to give anything away, but it becomes a very extreme tale of what can happen when you have this facade and, you know, you, you feel this need to preserve this image and to be the cool girl. And so I really identified with her without it obviously turning as anywhere near as nasty and terrifying as what went on in there. But I identified with this whole, the, what I used to call the blending, merging, twisting, and adapting to whatever guy I was going out with. Um, <laughs> something I've I've talked about over the years is that when I was um, involved with the guy who had a girlfriend, this is like back in my 20s, the co-worker, um, during that time I said that my favorite film was, uh, what was it called? City of God. Um, the truth is, my favorite films, because it's always been a joint first place for these, are actually Ghost and Coming to America. <laughs> now, <laughs> there's a really, really stark contrast between City of God and Ghost and Coming to America. Uh, like City of God, you know, is great, but it wouldn't even be in my top 10, maybe even top 20 of films. But for like a couple of years, I was like, yeah, yeah, my favorite film is that. And I did that because I wanted to come across like I was the type of girl that he should be with. And I was prepared to be and do all these things, including compromising my integrity and becoming a liar for two years, because that's what I thought that forged this connection between us and showed how much I cared about and loved him. But it was all of this willingness to, to play the, the role, because people-pleasing it, it always ends up about playing roles of some sort. And roles are what we learn to do in childhood. You know, like where in your family, maybe there's one who's like super responsible. Maybe there's another one who's like the listener. Maybe there's one who maybe is considered to be irresponsible or the overachiever or the underachiever or the pretty one or the clever one. This is rife in in families. And what happens is we just continue to play these roles. So you and I, when we're out there playing cool girl and whichever else, that that was actually, if we really like looked deeper into it, we've played that role in other guises. For instance, in our teen years, maybe we're friends. Um, and some of the components of what we were doing were things that we had learned to, to do in childhood. And so like, I was always like very good at being a listener because guess what? I learned to do a lot of listening in childhood. And it doesn't mean that these things that 
about us that we maybe pride ourselves on are air quotes wrong as such, but we end up using them like a mask because people pleasing is actually a block to intimacy. And so as you realized, and so did I, is that you play the role of cool girl. So you go in as a fake person. And then when they don't like you or they mess you about or they don't want a relationship, you feel rejected. And you feel rejected for being somebody that you're not, which then kind of creates this confusion because it's like, well, hold on a second. They don't even want me when I'm being the fake version of me. So what on earth would happen if I was the real version of me? And so round and round we go. Yeah. So what made you finally decide that this was something that you were going to try to change? Um, For me, um, it was 2005. It was the year that I started. I started Baggage Reclaim September 2005. And for the... 18 months or so prior to that, I, but actually probably really two years, I had been struggling with an immune system disease called sarcoidosis. Um, in fact, I, I tend to call it a mystery immune system disease. I didn't know why I had it. And they also said that it couldn't be cured. And during that time was also the same time that I was in this affair as well. And about a month or so before starting Baggage Reclaim, I after a year of steroid treatment and about a month off from that, all the symptoms started to come back. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And I basically went to go, I had my appointment with the consultant and they said, look, you know, you've done a year's um, treatment and we'd hoped that that would force it into submission, but it hasn't worked. So you have to go on steroids for life. And as I was sitting there, listening to him going on and on, you know, no cure. You, if you don't take this, you're going to be, you know, dead by the age of 40 from pulmonary heart failure, you know, reduced mobility, da, 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 da. da. And I, I know it sounds cliche to say life flashing before your eyes, but I, it's, I started just all these flashes of all of these times when I just went along with things, when I didn't say no. And I felt like taking steroids for a year and just following instructions, like doing whatever the doctors told me to do, and then it still not working out, me still not being better, me being disappointed. I felt like that was a metaphor for for how things went for me in life. And so I'm sitting there and this guy is like, you know, basically rattling off all this stuff about the treatment plan, about how I've basically got to you know, start treatment straight away and all this type of stuff. And next thing I heard no, like really loud and clear in the room. So much so that I actually looked around the room to see who had said it. Cause it, it, I actually didn't realize that I was saying it and it was me. And he went, what? And I was like, no, um, I need more time. Uh, you don't know why I have it. You say there's no cure. So, I need to explore other options. And he went into a whole thing again about how there weren't any other options. But it's funny because normally I was afraid to be, you know, disobedient around authorities, you know, being good, you know, you know, not creating confrontation and all this stuff. But I didn't feel like that in there. I just suddenly thought to myself, I'm so sick and tired of doing what everybody else wants me to do. And I'm, I can't believe that I've been sick for this long. And I've been so caught up in being a performer at work and being involved with this guy and some other guy that I'd then dated for five months that I hadn't even realized just how sick I was. I hadn't even really done any proper investigations into my health. And so I said no. And that day really for me, just it caused this massive shift in my life because I walked out of there saying to him, look, I'll see you. In three months' time, I'll come for all of my appointments. Obviously, if my symptoms start to accelerate in that time, I will come back sooner than that. But otherwise, I'll see you in three months. And he was just looking at me like, "Uh, okay. But I left there and I went to see a kinesiologist. Have you you heard of kinesiologist? Yes. Yeah. So I went to see a kinesiologist, which, funny enough, a friend had mentioned uh, it to me, but also a number of commenters like on my blog had mentioned about seeing an acupuncturist and a kinesiologist just trying those options so I went to see a kinesiologist and um I just thought she'd talk to me about like muscle testing and like allergy like which foods to cut out and all the rest and she did but she started poking around into emotions Nicole and I was like uh 
I just remembered that I've actually got a meeting at work that I'd forgotten about. I totally didn't. I was just making it up like there and then. I just felt suddenly really panicked. And she started asking me about my childhood and about feelings and stuff. And after changing my mind and deciding to stay, I broke down in tears and a whole lot of stuff sort of came tumbling out. And in that conversation, she mentioned the word boundaries. She didn't actually go into any particularly big explanation about it, but I remember it going, oh, it's an interesting word. I felt like it was something I kind of heard vaguely. You know, they don't say it as often as they do now, but this is like, uh, this is 2005 that this was being said to me. And as I was starting to make these changes of my health, this, you know, this treatment plan with the kinesiologist, I realized, well, what's the point in doing all of this stuff if you're still going to go around like doing all of the other stuff that you normally do? So I had to start, start making changes. And as a result of all of that, I started like, it was small bits of stuff every day, but I basically left that appointment. I went to work, sat with HR and I said, Hey, guess what? I've kind of been sick for two years and I know I haven't mentioned it to you, but, uh, I've got this, I've been on steroids for a year. I was putting steroid eye drops in. This is the diagnosis. And I know that I basically haven't like missed days of work. I've used holiday days, but I think it's time you knew what was going on. And they were shocked, like totally shocked. And they immediately reduced my hours. They did an assessment to see what they needed to provide me with, with work. And this was the beginning of me basically finding that there was actually an awful lot of joy in saying no, quite a lot of relief as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously it's always interesting when you, you know, in five minutes boil down what was clearly like multiple <laughs> years of your life, right? Like it's, it, it makes it, of course, easy to forget that I'm sure it was really hard as well. And there were lots of ups and downs, but totally. I, I'm I'm really interested in, you know, you painted such a clear picture of, you know, what some of the people pleasing looked like, and then such a clear picture of this period of when the enough moment came. And I think that it it's, it's easy to try to put that into such a tight box, right? Like someone listening could yeah. think, oh, like she was like that and now she's just not anymore. And obviously I know that's, that's not the case. Yeah. And so I'm interested, you know, with the time that we have left, if you could give some examples of the actual how of changing mm -hmm. and growing in this way, like some of the things that you did or that you continue to do, right? Since I know that this is an ongoing process that yeah. actually work for you to break those kind of tendencies and behaviors of people pleasing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, the thing that I would underscore from the outset, and you've already said it, which is this has been a 15-year journey for me. And literally from when I walked out of that appointment, I did start doing, you know, small things. And it was scary. Like, I constantly felt as if the sky was about to fall down. But I was also more scared of dying. So I continued. But when I look back over my 15 year journey, even though I made a lot of progress within several months, like literally straight out the gate, wow, like a lot of the big journey of my people pleasing has particularly happened over the last sort of six to eight years of my life as well. And, it, and with every year, there's been big lessons in it. So from the outset, like for me, I had to, I, I didn't go you know, who any of us did we go and take any class on boundaries when we were at school or whatever. So I had to figure it out as I went. But what I did was that um, I used to get in, I used to be on a lot of phone calls with my mom. And they were not the sort of back and forth calls, you know, where you're having a chat and, you know, it feels like there's a flow to it. Um, they were draining and sometimes very triggering. And I took to having more like 10 to 12 minute conversations. And I don't want to say that it was that specific, but I, I realized that kind of 15 minutes was sort of my limits and that I stopped holding myself on these super draining calls, like as if I'm just supposed to be some sort of receptacle container, you know, to, you know, pick up everybody's emotions, they're sort of their dumping ground. And so what I did is that I would say, like, if it was sort of unexpectedly that we were talking, I'd say, look, actually, I've only got like sort of 10, 15 minutes. Is that all right? 
or shall we park this for later on? Or we would be talking and it would kind of go into this territory of feeling like I was about to be dumped on or criticized or something. And I would go, oh gosh, would you look at the time? I just realized I've got to be blah, blah. I've got to be wherever in, you know, wherever many minutes or I've got somebody else in the line. And I did this consistently and it, I'm not kidding you, changed my life overnight. I hadn't realized how drained, how tense, how anxious, how resentful I was feeling a lot of the time where the phone would ring and I would have this sort of dread around me. And as a result of doing this, I found that I stopped taking responsibility for my mom's feelings and I stopped feeling as if it is my job to be a good daughter. And so because that is my job, I have to stay on the phone even if I don't want to, even if I feel uncomfortable, even if actually this person is saying awful things to me. And this was this created a dramatic shift in my life. Now, the relationship with my mom and even with my dad, I'd say were the most difficult ones for me around with the people pleasing, but they also, when I say they've been rewarding, I'm not talking about them, but I mean like changing my relationship with them has definitely been super rewarding because I started to put some distance between things. Like I stopped, I started looking at oh, where do I feel obliged? I started noticing what I was feeling. This is a big thing. Is it an obligation or is it a desire? And a lot of the time I was feeling like it was an obligation. And at the time I didn't really call it that, you know, I'm calling it that now because I'm years down the line, but I started noticing how I was truly feeling about things and started trying to be in a bit more of an honest place. Like when you turn, before I just let people say whatever. And I was like, now I was like, actually, I can't sit here and listen to this. And it was really quite liberating. Um, other things, let's see. Well, with exes, I cut them all loose. I was like somebody who had a lot of exes still sort of reaching out, trying to keep in touch, thinking they could kind of just restart things up. And I gradually cut that all off. Like just when they'd say, oh, hey, should we get together? I say, yeah, because you know what? I'm going to pass. Um, and I'm not saying it was easy because actually the first several months in particular, I tended to feel quite upset afterwards, particularly if I, if I had to kind of speak up for myself, sometimes I burst into tears afterwards with just the whole, I don't know, the buildup of having to do it. And sometimes, yeah, kind of feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I said that to that person and maybe they're going to hate me. And nine times out of 10, they didn't hate me. And if they did, well, it was better that we had that conversation. Um, a few months into all of this, a coworker started up something with me, like, because I'd been the performing people pleaser, I think he just expected that he could dump something on me. And basically I said, actually, I, I, I can't do that. I'm, I can't. And a big argument ensued. And I ended up with a migraine for four days afterwards and I actually couldn't go to work. And, but it really showed me about how I was taking on too much. So I really started to really force myself to delay on saying yes to stuff and tell people that I needed to get back to them. And that made a big difference because I was automatically always saying yes, 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 yes. Um, in recent years, a lot of my people pleasing uh, in particular has been around family, um, so there have been times where I've had to have some very, very difficult and awkward conversations. Ones that in the past I wouldn't have because I would have said, well, I don't want to hurt feelings. I don't want to cause confrontation, family, blah, blah, blah. But I was actually able to say what I wanted to say without expecting the other person to change. I mean, that's just a few examples, but I, 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 might, I want to make sure I'm not kind of going off piece to the yeah, no, I feel like so I want to just kind of like underscore a couple things that you were saying. This idea about differentiating between desire and obligation, I think, mm -hmm. is incredibly powerful. And it's it's something that I, I'm always interested in, like why it's hard for us to be honest with ourselves. And I think, you know, that there can be multiple reasons. But for me, I realized that one of the reasons that I was like lying to myself so much about different things is because I thought that as soon as I was honest with myself about something, that meant that I had to 
do something about it and I wasn't ready to do something about it and like creating a little bit more space between those two. Like I can admit to myself if something feels like an obligation and not a true desire. And that doesn't mean that I have to make a change yet. I can think about it more, right? Mm-hmm. I can kind of work through it. And yeah. that was that was always really helpful for me. And so I, I feel like hearing you talk about just that noticing being something that was useful yeah. for you of, again, what is the why behind this? Why am I doing this? And obviously, of course, sometimes we have to do things that we don't want to do. But I really had to check myself on that because I think the, the amount of things that I have to do truly have to do that I don't, you know, that our obligations are actually quite small. There's a lot of things that I told myself, you know, there's no way you could stop doing this, right? There's, you know, you would lose these people, you would lose this money, you would lose that, you know, like I, I put the stakes so high and told myself that, you know, you have to keep doing all these things when the truth was there were very few of them that I actually had to keep doing. And so that the sort of noticing, the delaying saying yes when people, you know, ask a request, oh, let me check my calendar, let me check my schedule, let me get back to you. Just being able to create that buffer of space, I feel like is also really useful because then it lets me not in the moment feel like I have to give the yes to make them happy right now. It was easier for me to give the no after that like an initial ask kind of Mm -hmm. frenzy feeling had worn off. Yeah, absolutely. Because when we people please, it's a way of relieving tension in the short term. So it's like something occurs, we automatically comply or we hastily, you know, say yes or whatever it is because of this automatic or almost automatic response to this tension, this anxiety. And that tension, anxiety comes from, it's like, oh, somebody I think has expressed a need robot activated. Now I must go and please that person and do what they want because somebody (laughs) out there has a need. Ooh, somebody expressed an interest in something or said that they were struggling about something. It's like robot activated. Somebody has a desire, you know, go and fulfill it. And when we start to notice not even just how we feel, which is a biggie, but also not even just noticing about the whole obligation thing, but even what's whirling around in our head. So for example, I say to people, you know, somebody asks you to do something outwardly, you're like, yeah, sure. Inwardly, you're going, I can't believe that mother beep has turned around and asked me to do this. Who do they think they are? Do they not realize how much stuff I've got to do? I can't believe they even have the brass nose to turn around and say this. Or we're going, yeah, but you know, if I turn around and I say no, then maybe people are going to think I'm this and I don't want people to think I'm that. And, you know, I just think it would be better if I do it this way. I don't want people thinking that I'm not a team player. All of this kind of stuff is a sign that you need to say no, or you need to find the desire in you to do it. And the thing about people pleasing is it's a way of being checked out from the world. Whereas when we actually start to observe our day, like one of the things that I encourage people to do is Rather than going, oh, well, I've heard this thing about people pleasing and I've realized that, you know, I'm being taken advantage of and, you know, I've been given too much and so I'm going to rein it in and have boundaries. People then go and charge off and then they're like, oh my gosh, like this is like backfiring. And I say, no, spend a week observing, like just as part of your day to day, have a post-it or, uh, you know, your journal or whatever it is where you are noting what you say yes no, and maybe two. Now, your average people pleaser doesn't have a hell of a lot of no in there. There's possibly not even any maybes in there. Or sometimes what you find is there's hardly any no, and there's plenty of yes, and there's plenty of maybes that are going to turn into yes. The maybes are just like a stalling thing. And then they panic themselves into saying yes. So I say to them, observe your week so that you can start to notice what you're spending basically your bandwidth on, like where are you spending your attention, your time, energy, effort, and emotions? Because the more of your bandwidth that is spent being and doing things that you don't actually need or want to do is the more drained you're going to feel and the less bandwidth you have. And so what's interesting is people will then spend that week observing and what they will notice is the truth about how they spend their time, energy, effort, and emotions. They will see who routinely makes them feel bad. They will notice, oh, wow, like when my phone rings or I get that, you know, the the text ding sound or whatever, I actually feel a bit jumpy and nervous because I'm thinking it's whoever it is. So I'm going to say to people is people pleasers often have a people pleasing entourage. So um, a person or few who benefits 
from our people pleasing. Um, not necessarily because they intentionally set out to, although sometimes they do, but you know, like, um, with celebs who have like a drink or drugs problem and then they have like a whole group of people around them and you go like, how come nobody ever pointed out that maybe doing that amount of Coke is not a good idea. But those people in the entourage benefit from that celeb having that particular lifestyle and like drinking themselves into oblivion or doing that Coke. Well, with people pleasers, they will notice that there are certain people in their life who it benefits them the most for them to people please. And so it might be our parents, it might be, I don't know, a sibling, it might be a boss, whoever it might be. But once we can become aware of who is in that entourage, we can also start to notice the people in our lives who actually do not have any problem whatsoever with us saying no. Because then we can identify opportunities for us to be more ourselves. As a result of this observation, then, what we can look at is, okay, where can I even if it's not today, tomorrow, or even on next week, where can I gradually start to make some shifts? We don't have to go and change up the whole thing. We just need to start somewhere. Yeah, I love that. And I, I also really, for me, I learned, and I'm, I'm continually learning this, but how much better it feels to have honest, kind, direct communication instead of like passive aggressive hinting yeah. or manipulation or, you know, so much of this stuff for me, if I'm willing to have, you know, one honest conversation that so much of it can be made better, right? Or boundaries can be established. And like you said, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes you do wind up losing people. But I think that the the more I'm willing to have that direct communication, like I would so much rather someone give me a no, right? Like say no to if I've made a request of them. If they mean no, I'd so much rather them say no than say yes, but not mean it. Say yes and flake at the last minute. Say yes, but show up, but not really be there, right? Like, And all of that is stuff that I have done before. And I it just feels so icky when it's done to me. So why would I do that to someone else? Like I can't even tell you how much energy I have wasted in my life trying to figure out how to get out of something that I said yes to that I shouldn't have said yes to. I mean, I really want to do like one of those testify dances there because <laughs> you are talking stone cold facts there. Because one of the things that we have to come to terms with as, as people pleasers is that if we're people pleasing, then we're not being honest. It doesn't make us a bad person, but the people pleasing is this mask and it blocks intimacy. We get to avoid vulnerability with it. And it's it's this whole thing of not going the, ho the whole way and hiding behind this, oh, well, it's going to hurt feelings. It's going to cause problems. The thing is, we cause far more problems by not talking about the stuff, because from the moment that we decide we're not going to talk about it because we've decided how the other person is going to feel, then we've cut off intimacy because the person doesn't actually know how we feel. But the other bit, which you were so spot on as well about, was about how, let you know, 100% is the whole way. We as people pleasers convince ourselves, well, we're, we're doing 70% of the work here. So we expect the other person to pick up the slack. But our idea of 70% might actually only be 30% of the way. It might actually be very little way at all. And what people pleasers do is they hint. People pleasing is like showing others how to behave. So when we're being like the good girl, and so no matter how badly somebody behaves, we do not like kick off about it. We don't say, you know, anything. We know we just try to be all cool and sweet and whichever else, right? That's because a part of us is like, look at me and how good I'm being. Take the hint and be good like me. And then we can both be cool together. And it does not work <laughs> like that. Sometimes what we're doing is, for instance, and I was guilty of this, being the good daughter. So playing this role of being what we think the good daughter has to be. And the reason why we're playing the role of the good daughter is because we're trying to appeal to one or both of our parents so that they will become what we need and want them to be. And so it's all this dropping hints. And then, you know, when we do this whole like, oh, I'm afraid of hurting feelings, the truth is, is we're more afraid of hurting our own feelings. That's the truth. We are afraid that if we are honest, that we're not going to like what the other person turns around and says, and that our feelings are going to be hurt, not the other way around. And the thing is, once we actually have these conversations and we get consistently into it, as you've discovered, 
you realize the sky doesn't fall down, that you're better off in an honest relationship than a dishonest one. Yeah. Or that if I am disappointed or that someone does reject me, it will be painful and I will be okay. Yes. Yes. The two things can exist at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the, the one of the things I say to people is like, boundaries are like our principles, preferences, and priorities for how we want to live our lives happily and authentically. Now, a lot of people misunderstand boundaries and see it all as about saying no. Saying no is actually just a part of boundaries, not all of boundaries. Boundaries is as much about what we say yes to as it is about what we say no to. Now, one of the things that I think creates a lot of friction is this idea that we should be able to get a good reaction out of people because we've said something nicely, because we've actually had the boundary, because we've done the right thing. And you know, as well as I do, humans don't work that way because humans have egos. And so uh, an example I give is, let's say you've been pissed off with somebody for like, I don't know, a month about something. And you've had time now to think about that. And now you actually turn around and you say to the person about what has been bothering you. That's great that you turned around and said something. But the thing is, you've had a month to think about that. They've just had a minute or five or however long that conversation took to become acquainted with that. I'm not saying it's going to take them a month to digest whatever it is that you've told them, but they are allowed to have whatever feelings that they've had about it. And I think with people pleasing, we seem to be under this mistaken impression that we're supposed to spare people from their feelings, that that we're supposed to ensure that nobody feels anything. And I think (laughs) we're not. Yeah. Oh my God. This is so real. I I feel like that in particular, I need to like replay that to myself like every morning as my like pump up thing. Yeah. Not, it is not our job to spare other people from their feelings. And and, and you know what, right? It is like trying to cup the ocean in our hands because I bet you can think of a time where with all the best intentions in the world, you've actually tried to avoid like, I don't know, some sort of negative outcome in a situation. And yet, despite all of that, The person has whatever feelings they have, whatever opinion, they do whatever they do. So you realize that you're not in control of that because people respond to stuff based on their baggage, not on us. So we're there trying to control how they feel about stuff and people are going to feel how they're going to feel. And we've got to stop acting like, oh, well, if I do things the right way, they will feel how I want them to feel. Humans are far too complicated for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's a wonderful place to start to wrap up. Is there anything um, that hasn't come up so far in the conversation that you wanted to mention? Um, yeah, something did pop into my head a moment ago. What was it? Uh, we talked about the desire. Oh, the something that I encourage people to do is when when you get into that place where you are like, oh, well, it's going to hurt their feelings if I do that or where you're pissed off with somebody and you know, you're, you're mad at them for whatever it is that they've done and you feel like you've done a lot for them. The question I get people to ask themselves is, what's the baggage behind this? And what I mean by this is, yes, the person has pissed us off or disappointed us or whatever it might be, but what else does this specific incident, how we are feeling, what the person has done, what we're thinking, what else does it remind us of? Who else does it remind us of? Because that will help us to understand why we are responding, reacting in the way that we are. This can be a big game changer for people because I think it it depersonalizes things because we realize, oh, I've got my baggage and they've got their baggage as opposed to, oh, well, I've been a really good person, so they should have responded differently. Because then it's like, oh, I'm reacting to this in this way because they actually remind me of my really annoying sister. Or I'm responding this way because I feel like I did when I was a teenager at school when this particular thing happened. And then we can go, oh, hold on a second. Like I'm 43. I'm not at school anymore. How can I respond differently now, you know, based on where I am now in the present? And this helps us to be more boundaried. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. The The last thing that I want to ask you, if you could leave folks with one small call to action based on our conversation, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take if this is something that's resonating with them? 
Um, in the quest to become more grounded, to be more mindful, as you're going about your life and you're signing yourself up to things, committing to things, ask yourself, am I doing this because I want to? Or am I doing this because I want to control how I'm perceived or I want to avoid something? And that's not actually a depressing question to ask. It's actually a really good way of becoming self-aware because the better that you get to know you is the better that your relationships, the more honest your relationships become. Yeah, I think it's a really liberating question because even if, let's say the realization is, oh, I'm doing X thing because I want to be perceived a certain way, even if I decide to keep doing that, it feels better that I'm at least knowing why I'm doing it and doing it on purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than, you know, this sort of unconscious blind bowling in there and afterwards we give ourselves a hard time, it's like, actually, let's open our eyes and wake up and make more conscious choices because then actually we have an opportunity to learn from it. Because if you went in there with your eyes closed, you know, half asleep doing that, as you said, when you consciously go, actually, I'm still going to go ahead anyway, you'll learn a lot more from the experience. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a particular favorite way to connect with new folks? Instagram is always the best place to get a hold of me. I'm 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 not massive on uh, I don't massively use like Facebook or Twitter. So it's Instagram uh, at Natlu N A T L U E is my Instagram handle. And of course, I'm on my website baggagereclaim.com where you can also find my podcast and well gosh about 1600 blog posts or something like that. Yeah. A a everyone who's listening who wants to go deeper, <laughs> Natalie has everything you could possibly want in which to do that, which is fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Natalie, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Nicole. It was an absolute pleasure. You are a breath of fresh air. And that's our show for today. Our music is by Adam Day, who also handles our sound editing. Thanks, Adam. You're the best. And huge thanks as well to every single member of our Patreon community for making this honest conversation, this entire podcast, and so much of my other work, like my twice-weekly personal essay newsletter called Good Question, possible. Your monthly funding allows me to keep creating resources and gatherings for folks who crave honest conversations, both with themselves and others. And I fully believe that these conversations can change our lives, our relationships, and our world. To join us, just come on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Our community operates on a shame-free sliding scale, so you can feel good about supporting this work from within your own means. So I'll see you over in the Patreon community, yeah? And until next time, I want you to know three things. First, that you are enough. Second, that you are not alone. And third, that I'm totally rooting for you.